0: Okay, so we are jumping back into our study of Genesis 1 to 11. So we're going to be again today in some, uh, some continued introductory material, some background material. Um, probably next week we'll jump into the first two verses of Genesis in depth. I am going to try to get to um, Genesis chap- uh, verse 1 verse 1 for a brief exercise for us to make some observations, some introductory observations of that one verse. But um, we do need to kind of, I think, continue to develop some background material and uh, really set our minds um, right in our approach to the study overall. So I'd like to to do that. And I also want to take a little bit of time to review some of the things we talked about last week in a a very brief way. Um, If you recall, last week we kind of acknowledged collectively, or at least I acknowledged, and you seemed like you generally agreed, that that, uh, in general we're not really great with history, as a general rule, um, Winston Churchill, when he was addressing uh, the House of Commons in the time of World War II in 1935, um, he was lamenting the inaction of his country in taking earlier steps to prevent this wave of invasion that Hitler was engaging in um, at that time. And he said this he said, There's nothing new in the story, it is as old as the Sibylline ancient Greek mythology books, it falls into that long, dismal catalog of the fruitlessness of experience and the confirmed unteachability of mankind. Want of foresight, unwillingness to act when action would be simple and effective, lack of clear thinking, confusion of counsel until the emergency comes, until self-preservation strikes its jarring gong, these are the features which constitute the endless repetition of history. And if you recall last week I mentioned a statement made by one of the teachers at uh, Cherokee Christian one of the history teachers when he said it is not hi- that it's not that history repeats itself it's that man fundamentally just doesn't change. And that statement by Winston Churchill sort of says the same thing. It's the same old story. Man not learning, man not thinking clearly, man not heeding counsel. So the issue for us is that it's not that history repeats itself really The events are typically different, maybe some slightly the same, but the fundamental reality is that we don't change. And and we really pointed out last week how uh, at the core, this lack of of ability or willingness to change goes to this innate principle of self-absorption, particularly when you're talking about history, self-centeredness and self-absorption that's innate in all of us. Uh, We talked about how that if something is not happening to us, or for us, or with us, or on our behalf, it just kind of doesn't matter. It's not the, fa- the, the problem that we have is not that we don't know how to understand the facts of history if they're presented to us. Um, it's not that we, don't, we can't think, if we took some time to contemplate, think about maybe some of the implications from history or things that you conclude could conclude from history. It's that in our self-centeredness and self-absorption, If it's not happening right now, and it's not happening to us, with us, for us, on our behalf, to our benefit, it's that our our self-centeredness innately kind of pushes against that to say, it's just not relevant. It's just not relevant to what I'm going through, what I'm experiencing, what I'm looking for, what I need for my happiness and satisfaction. So this issue of studying history or contemplating history or thinking about history, we have to acknowledge at the outset that we have an innate barrier to it because of this innate self-centeredness that we that we all possess and struggle with. So if we think about this reality, um, if, if recent history is problematic for us, remember I talked last week about the man on the street interviews for uh, the 9-11 uh, recollection for, for incoming college freshmen at George Mason University, and how they just had no clue uh, about why we were attacked on 9-11. I mean, they literally did not even, it wasn't even on their radar screen, and these are college freshmen entering to a reputable university. And so I don't know if that says something about the schools that they went to before then. I think it probably says more about their grasp of, or their contemplation of the implications of history that they did learn, that they were exposed to. And it it speaks to this this self-centeredness. But the fact of the matter is is that if if recent history is really not that relevant to us, then we have to assume that if it's ancient history, then it, it really doesn't matter. I mean, if you're talking about something that was way, way, way back, then I'm really uninterested and, un- and unconcerned about it. So we have this, this challenge, this innate problem that's before us, and that is that we are plagued with a, a sort of an innate self-centeredness, an innate self-absorption, and, and yet we're going to enter into a study of things that happened in a period called primeval history, which really means just a long time ago <laughs> in a general way. Um, so we have to we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of that that barrier. Um, and so, you know, I, I tried to illustrate this, this point um, with the illustration of the, the Man on the Street interviews about 9-11. But the problem is much deeper, obviously, than the fact that we just don't care about historical events because we're self-centered and we really mostly care about the things that are happening right now. We're, we're more interested in What's happening in my life right now? Because that's all I know how to think about. That's all I'm concerned about. It, it's not just that. Um, it, it's really much deeper and much more profound and significant than just that. And we, and we talked about sort of the other side of this problem. It's much deeper than just a shallow self-absorption that renders past events sort of unworthy of our attention. Um, when we approach primeval history in Genesis 1 to 11, Uh, we need to recognize that we are not approaching just an ancient historical record. We talked a little bit about this last week. When we approach Genesis, and in particular, right out of the gate, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we are not just beginning a study of the beginning of history. We are basically stepping into the beginning of Almighty God's revelation of Himself and all of His power and glory. That's what we're stepping into. And so... We could say that from just the study of history perspective, in our innate self-centeredness, we're kind of like, oh, that's way long ago, it doesn't really matter. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we approach Genesis chapter one, and we come face to face with a holy, powerful, all-consuming fire that is God himself, and particularly as he reveals himself in his creative power, we are confronted with another significant problem. And that is that we, when we come face to face in our sin before a holy God as He reveals Himself to us, we respond in folly and sinfulness. We 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 want to run and hide, or we want to we want to. It says in in Romans chapter one, we looked at this last week. We like to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what we like to do in our fallenness. We illustrated that um, poignantly, I think, I hope. It was actually impactful for me anyway when I thought about it, and and I I talked about this complex mechanism of the human voice, and we looked at the various components of this mechanism that produces human speech, all the things that have to be working together and in concert for us to be able to speak and to speak clearly and at different pitches and and to sing and and all these physiological uh, components that work together in this mechanism called the voice to produce Audible and understandable speech or song. And we made the point last time that in, in the face of this wonder called the voice, man through the ages has incessantly used this mechanism created by God to blaspheme him, to deny him and to scoff him. So even though it is a mechanism that was created by God, it is sustained by God, we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, which says that, "...for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, including your voice, including the ability to inhale into your lungs and then produce the air going out that has, is part of that mechanism of producing the voice." We, we, In the face of that, we use what we have before us and the creation that we walk around in. We use that to deny the very creator who made it all. That's a bigger, more fundamental problem than just self-centeredness and self-absorption that just makes us not really care about history. That's much more significant, obviously. Both are problematic, but the Romans 1 problem, if you will, The problem with our coming face to face with a holy God in our unrighteousness that causes us to want to suppress that truth, even though we can see through what has been made who he is, he has made himself known clearly by what is made, we suppress that truth in unrighteousness and in our sin, and we just don't want to face God our maker in our sin. We have a tendency to want to run from that. We further illustrated that and and we'll look at Genesis chapter 3, but before I go there, let's let's consider also what happens from this Romans chapter 1 passage when that suppression of the truth occurs. There is a great and tragic exchange that takes place. Do you guys remember what that is? What does man exchange when he's suppressing the truth about who God is and how he's revealed himself through what he's made? What is that exchange that takes place from Romans chapter 1? Anybody remember that? changes the truth for a lie, exchanges what else? That's right. He he exchanges the worship of the creator, the glory of the immortal God. He exchanges that for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is a massive exchange here. But that's what man in his sin and in his, right, and in his, and in his unrighteousness does. We routinely, uh, and with, let me just add this, not just routinely, but with great intention and effort, we make this exchange. We suppress what is patently obvious about God, and we become creature and creation centered as opposed to God or creator centered in our thinking in our speaking, in our living. That's the exchange that we make. It's a tragic, tragic, fatal exchange. I want to read this article to you. This is from The Telegraph, a a London uh, news publication. And it's, uh, I think it was written in uh, 2008. So it's a fairly recent article. It says, uh, the title of the article says this, Children are born believers in God, an academic claims. Now listen to this. Children are born believers in God and do not simply acquire religious beliefs through indoctrination, according to an academic. Dr. Justin Barrett, a senior researcher at the University of Oxford's Center for Anthropology and Mind, claims that young people have a predisposition to believe in a supreme being because they assume that everything in the world was created with a purpose. Imagine that. He says that young children have faith even when they have not been taught about it by family or at school and argues that even those, who ra- those raised alone on a desert island would come to believe in God. This is a quote from his research. The preponderance of scientific evidence for the past 10 years or so has shown that a lot more seems to be built into the natural development of children's minds than we once thought including a predisposition to see the natural world as designed and purposeful and that some kind of intelligent being is behind that purpose. Through the things that have been made, God has made himself plain. He says, if we threw a handful on an island and they raised themselves, I think they would believe in God. In a lecture to be given at the University of Cambridge's Faraday Institute on Tuesday, Dr. Barrett will cite psychological experiments carried out on children that he says show they instinctively believe that almost everything has been designed with a specific purpose. In one study, six- and seven-year-olds were asked why the first bird existed, and they replied, to make nice music, and because it makes the world look nice. Another experiment on 12-month-old babies suggested that they were surprised By a film in which a rolling ball apparently created a neat stack of blocks from a disordered heap. So they see something that couldn't possibly create order out of disorder, and they're surprised by what they're seeing. He added that this means children are more likely to believe in creationism rather than evolution, despite what they may be told by parents or teachers. Dr. Barrett claimed anthropologists have found that in some cultures children believe in God even when religious teachings are withheld from them. Quote, "Children normally and naturally develop uh, children's normally and naturally developing minds make them prone to believe in divine creation and intelligent design. In contrast, evolution is unnatural for human minds, relatively difficult to believe." Now listen to this, guys. Again, our context, how we think about what's going on in the world around us in this great debate over where we came from and how all this came to be, okay? In light of that article, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now listen to this condemnation. This massive condemnation of our culture. But Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Can you imagine the volume of millstones right now? In classroom after classroom, school after school, home after home, Parents and teachers and those with authority are teaching children to believe what is completely contrary to what they would naturally assume and observe by the created order around them. And they are fastening giant millstones around their necks. This is an example of the world that we live in and the problem that we face when we start thinking about a study of origins. Of primeval history, we have to remember this principle. When we looked at Genesis chapter three, we also recognize that it's not just that you have um, man and his unrighteousness, or maybe you would consider someone who um, is maybe not exposed to the truth, or is, is you know is, is would be uh, irreligious. You know, as a baseline, they just they don't attend church, and they just they've you know, always kind of shied away from or shunned anything related to god or anything like that but we also looked at genesis chapter 3 and we saw there we did a survey of kind of that that whole passage of the fall and we saw there that that not only like it says in romans chapter 1 that man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness about everything that he can see from creation but that we also are inclined to deceive ourselves even when we're presented with the truth and clarity of god's word remember what happened in the garden there where where Eve was led to, to misquote or add to what God had said about not eating from the tree, and she added to it, nor should you touch it. And we made the point that we have a tendency, even those who might either be around some type of professing faith community or may even be professing Christians themselves, to be obliged to take what has been clearly revealed in God's Word and to do something different with it because... We believe in our self-deception that what God has abundantly provided is not enough. It's just not enough. And that's exactly what happened in the garden, that dialogue in the garden, where she's looking at this one tree, even after the fact that God said, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. And so there's this one tree where all of a sudden she's thinking to herself, "In, in, in view of all of this abundant provision, it's just not enough. What God had said to me is not sufficient. So there's got to be more. I've got to make an adjustment. I've got to add to it. And so there are people, many, 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 many people in Christian communities who feel compelled to take what is the clearest reading and rendering and understanding of the Genesis account, particularly the Genesis account account of creation, and do something else with it as an accommodation to this fallen mind that pervades our world that's what happens that's what we live in so here's the principle that we're dealing with apart from the redeemed and renewed eyes of saving faith man in his sin and corruption cannot and will not see the world that god made and the god who made the world clearly therefore he will not interpret what he sees accurately let me say that one more time This is the operating principle for us, okay? Apart from the redeemed and renewed eyes of saving faith, man in his sin and corruption cannot and will not see the world God made and the God who made the world clearly. Therefore, he will not interpret what he sees accurately. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 6 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This recounting of Genesis chapter 1 through 11 events and people. He says in verse 6, uh, Hebrews says in verse 6, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seeks him. So the reality is that we are generally not good with history. We are very current in our attention span. And that's really characteristic of those of us who are born and conceived in sin and still wrestle with a sin nature that is inclined towards self-interest and self-centeredness and self-absorption. So if it's not happening now and happening to me or with me or for me or on my behalf, I'm just kind of not interested. But more importantly, we have a tendency when we face our maker in all of his splendor and glory and holiness to either want to run and hide or to rationalize our disobedience or to take what he's clearly revealed in his word and change it to make it fit our worldview or our perspective or our sense of knowledge or our grasp of our observations of the material world or whatever it might be, or even worse, we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And we make this tragic exchange. But the unbelieving world makes a tragic exchange, and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of creeping things. They, they make a creator-creature exchange, and they begin to worship the creation. They become creation and created, uh, creation and man-centered instead of God or creator-centered. So here's the, here's the fundamental truth. Everyone, everyone who approaches a study of Genesis in particular, of the Bible in general, but Genesis in particular, everyone brings to it a set of presuppositions. Everyone. A, a, a set of predetermined assumptions. That these, these assumptions that thoroughly guide and inform interpretation and understanding of it. In other words, no one comes to a study like this, no one, I mean, a a professor in an academy, uh, some scientist, some renowned physicist, no one comes to a study of the creation account with this pristine objectivity. Everyone brings to that study presuppositions, predetermined conclusions or ways of thinking that they bring to that study. So I have a question for you guys, and I'll just—this is just audience participation. If you—if if that is true, what do you think are some presuppositions that unbelievers often bring to the text of Scripture, and in particular to the creation account in Genesis chapter one? What is—what what is, what are the—what are the unbelievers, or what is the maybe the scientific community, if you want to, you know, think of it that way, um, bring? What are the presuppositions that they bring to? A study like this, or to their reading and understanding of, for example, Genesis chapter one. huge that's a huge one right there where people will come to the, 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 the creation narrative in genesis and they will import into it these ideas about what must be must have been happening to totally mythologize the account. They'll, they'll, they'll take they'll take you know well there's other examples. for example there are other examples of um, in, in in ancient Near Eastern literature of creation stories or creation narratives. Um, there's one called the Gilgamesh Epic and there's another one called the uh, Enish. um yeah, you know, I'm, I, I have it somewhere in, in another note here. I can't remember the exact name of it, but but they say because there are some similarities between what is in those and what is in the creation account, then certainly what that means, of course, right? I mean, because because I'm able to, to reason my way into this conclusion, of course, this is what it means that the, the creation account, it's really not inspired revelation from God recorded by the hand of Moses. Of course, it can't be that. It's it's. It's this accumulation of tradition and mythology and stories and pulling from these other ancient Near Eastern, Eastern creation accounts. And it's, it's assembled into this, this, this myth and story and legend to support or advance, you know, the Hebrew faith tradition. The huge, that's a huge presupposition that's, that's made. You really have to you really have to do some some hard work to make Genesis chapter 1 mean something other than what it says. I mean you you have to be really really smart, quote unquote, and and, and really really intellectual and do a lot of research and draw upon a lot of other academic research to come to conclusions other than what it says. Um, and we're gonna talk about some of those as we as we go forward. One other thing is uh, I think even more basic to us as following people
1: as we come through Genesis ideas for primitive. It's like you're the
0: final determiner right. of truth. That's you have Okay, to... you read my notes. <laughs> <laughs> you read my notes. My first my first uh the way I kinda see I I know that if I'm gonna ask a question and ask for your feedback. I already, I get to put answers down. So, um, (laughs) I may have. Um, One of the the first presupposition I put down is that man, or man's reasoning faculties, if you want to frame it that way, man is the final arbiter of truth. Man's the final arbiter of truth. That is a major presupposition that people bring to the text of Scripture that prove it to me. Like, I'm the one that stands... In a position of pure, undiluted, pristine clarity in my thinking and my rational ability. And the other assumption that has to go along with this is that I have comprehensive knowledge of all matters that might be associated with something minor like the origin of the universe. You you have to make such massive assumptions So the presuppositions that are that are being made are not they're not small, they're they're not little minor like oh that's just kind of part of how people are you know we all kind of think what we think about things no these are massive presuppositions that are rooted in the pride of man deeply rooted in the pride of man man is the final arbiter of truth that's the first one I had anybody have any others other ideas about presuppositions Uh, just if you're going to come to the text especially Genesis and you already believe that uh, the Earth is millions of years old, then
1: you're not, you know, you, you're already
0: clashing. So, I mean, you know, if you, you know and if you, if you don't believe that the Scripture is the
1: final authority, that God actually is, like you said, God's inspired word and not just, uh, you know, thrown together by some men that wrote it, then you're coming to it
0: already. In the know. wrong way. Let me see if this gets a little bit close to what you're saying. Remember, I had, I, I had advance notice on, on this. <laughs> so the second one that I, I put down was that science is purely objective and therefore ultimately authoritative. So, therefore, if I am adopting scientific, quote-unquote, conclusions about something, for example, like the age of the universe, that it's 4.2 billion years old or whatever, Okay, and I come to Genesis chapter one and there's all this nonsense about there was morning and there was evening the first day and all this stuff about day one, day two, day three. I mean, then at minimum, when I approach the text of Scripture, if I'm maybe a a professing Christian, maybe I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and I'm holding on to that that, you know, that profession of faith. But I come to the text of Scripture and I've already adopted the presupposition that science really is authoritative in, the, in these matters, and science has definitively, de- definitively concluded that the age of the universe is not, you know, six to ten thousand years old. It's four billion years old, and there's all kinds of scientific data to prove it. Now I'm in a bit of a dilemma because I'm convinced over here that science is supreme, science is authoritative, but yet I. I I think there's heaven, and I want to go there, and so I think I need to hold on. You know, whatever that thought process is, I mean, I, I, I signed a card, or I went to camp, and I said I love Jesus, or whatever it might be. So I've got to figure out how to make this fit into the paradigm of science. That's that's my task now. That's my dilemma now. I think part of the problem is we, we transfer the other scientific enlightenment that we know to be true, like advances that have taken place in the last couple hundred years in science, and then we just assume other things that science will claim is the evolutionary biology, that sort of thing, that all those things are also true, because we know that we have applied science to other things like curing diseases, and so now this other thing must be true, and we just have to take it as a whole and don't question other things that are told to us there. Right. And these people who were writing these things didn't have the scientific
1: enlightenment, therefore we have to question why they wrote the things that they wrote.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was wondering one of our scientists, scientists was going to speak up.
1: Well, often, and at that point, because science is considered authoritative, then, and then people start you know, fitting those two together, the Bible and science, and then you come up with theistic evolution right. and those kinds of things, and then it just you know, completely changes it. But what people, and it's again, as a believer and as a scientist, people have to, as a believer especially, people have to realize that God is above science. science. You know, he can break all the laws that that's right. we are told by. Because, you know, he can.
0: That's right. And, and that's we're going to talk about that in just a second, too. So um, any other presuppositions you'd like to mention? Yeah, so if you have a problem with the creation narrative in Genesis, you have a problem with Paul. You're going to have to redo Paul. You're going to have to redo Jesus. I mean, that, we're going to talk about that too. But this, this issue of a presupposition about, about what is true and what is not true and what is authoritative and what is not authoritative, if you come at this the wrong way, then it's not that, that your problems are going to be isolated to Genesis chapter 1. It's going to be comprehensive. It's going to be massive in scale and scope. I also think that if you start from a place, like, assuming things like evolution are true, even if you profess to be a believer, like, with professors at colleges or something like that, just because that's what I'm around right now, also is like obligated by the scientific community mm-hmm. to say things like the earth is this many years old or evolution took this long to happen or right. evolution in general. And so she, I think um, like academics go into reading something like scripture and they try and force it to fit their beliefs that they already quote unquote know to be true. Right. 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 So there you have someone who potentially is a believer, who has felt compelled to accommodate to science, and not just accommodate to science, because in that environment, it's religion, and if you are not on board, then you are a pagan, and you must be excommunicated. I mean, in the, and you guys in the scientific. Community and academia, you can probably attest to this with a lot more clarity and personal experience. But, but you get blackballed. I mean, in, in the academic world, in in this arena, you get completely shunned and blackballed. It's it's a major, major deal. So you got someone who has a career concern and an income concern and all these things, and so they're they're sort of at this, they're they're at the the forefront of really a spiritual battle and. Maybe it's been an intellectual conclusion that they feel like they've drawn, or maybe it's just been a, a, you know, a compulsion to accommodate. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's been a decision in that point that science is supreme, science is authoritative. When it comes to these matters, that, that area of study and research and experimentation is, is where authority lies. Major error in presupposition, but that's the presupposition nonetheless. And just to be clear... When we talk about science, we're really talking about um what could be termed uniformitarian methodological naturalism. everybody got that There'll be a quiz later but it's i want to i wanna, this is an important distinction here because when you talk about naturalism the naturalism kind of it's really a religion it 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 really is It it, it really rules the thinking of much of the scientific community. Naturalism, these two principles, these two assumptions of naturalism and uniformitarianism. And here, let me give you a a quick uh, um, uh, example or a definition of naturalism. It's the assumption, naturalism is is the assumption, that everything in the physical universe can and indeed must be explained by time, chance, and and the laws of nature working on matter, in other words, everything in the in the observed universe, and every conclusion, and every explanation that is made about it must come from that creation. And so it kind of goes back to what Shreyas was saying that we're talking about we're talking about something that transcends creation is where we start. But but the assumption here in naturalism is that. Well, you can only draw conclusions about the created world from the created world. Everything comes from a naturalistic source, from an observable source, uh, working uh, in the laws of nature and working on matter. Uniformitarianism is another assumption that's made, and that is that natural physical processes have always acted in the same manner, rate, and intensity as we see operating today. So in other words, the way things work now, laws of nature laws of physics, all the things that, you know, are in operation now in the physical universe have always operated that way. So when you're making your calculations, when you're drawing your conclusions about what you're observing, when you're conducting your experiments and interpreting the results of those experiments, your assumption is, is that the way things function now are the way things have always functioned, and that's also not what scripture teaches, some very major things that happened that affect the physical world that we live in. So we're going to talk about that as well. But that's the two assumptions that are made in science. And there's a yielding up that, okay, those are true. That everything that can be known about the universe is knowable from the study of the universe and and the, and the world that we live in. And the way that we come to conclusions about what we're observing is to make the assumption that the way things work now, they've always worked that way. And both of those things are not true, according to Scripture. So the third um, presupposition that I came up with, we've got to kind of keep moving here, um, is that religion and its corresponding sacred texts and articles of faith are, at best, a soothing balm to the pain and travail of life, and at worst, sources of intellectual delusion and social control. That's kind of the spectrum. Now, those are just my words that I, you know, based upon my thinking and reading on this. I mean, this is not some quote, so I could probably somebody could probably say it better. Or you could say more on this, but generally speaking, in the unbelieving community, religion and its corresponding sacred texts and articles of faith are at best a soothing balm to, to a soothing balm to the pain and travail of life. In other words, you know what? You can have your religion. You can have your religious faith, you can have your Bible, and you can have your doctrinal statements and all that stuff, and you can go to your church services because, you know, everybody needs some kind of balm, some kind of soothing interaction with their lives because life is hard, and, you know, people get sick, and loved ones get hurt, and relationships are broken, and and all those kinds of things, and people lose jobs, and, and people suffer, and so, so religion, if it serves that purpose, okay, you can have that religion can that's fine it's at best it's just this soothing balm, but at worst, and this is where it, this is where it could get to be it could be a violent altercation at worst, it is a, a way for religious people in their intellectual delusion i mean they're they're completely absurd in their conclusions about this God who created everything in their delusion they will use this religious system to control people socially. And so that's the, that's the presupposition. Our presuppositions for this study, this is where we're going to start from. Just a few of them. The first one is this. There is a God, and we are not him. Everybody good with that? There is a God, and we are not him. In other words, he's altogether other, and that's got to be okay with us. Second, This God has revealed Himself clearly and powerfully through His creation, through His Word, and through His Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has made Himself known powerfully and clearly in some key ways that we're going to yield to as authoritative. And then thirdly, the Bible is true, reliable, clear, and authoritative Now, let me read to you from our doctrinal statement here at the church, just so you can know the church's formal statement on the scriptures. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and it is the record of God's revelation of himself to man. Thus, the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary word of God. The word of God is verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original document, infallible, and God-breathed. God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship, The Holy Spirit superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part. The single true interpretation of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal grammatical historical method of interpretation, taking account of its literary forms and devices. This interpretation can only be found in dependence on the enlightenment given by the Holy Spirit. The truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. Being infallible, the Bible is sufficient to make the believer complete, equipped for all things related to life and godliness. The Scripture will remain unchanged in its authority and efficacy forever. That's our presupposition. Okay?